And pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your goodness and mercy. And even to come now to your word um, in Isaiah, that our hearts would be encouraged and formed, uh, that we would be biblically inspired um, to follow it. Uh, give us grace. We thank you for your mercy. Amen. The Good News, Part 2, Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Wow, what a great passage. It really is. This is an important message, and, and I suppose one could, every time they teach, say, this is what? An important message, because every time we open the Word of God, it is an important message. And that would be curious if someone ever um, said, well, this is an unimportant message. Um, then I would say, uh, it's an important message, because what does it do? It brings us face to face with really the purpose of covenant people. Uh, by covenant people, I mean those who have been called by God to serve him and deliver him and to make his salvation known. We have a covenant purpose. And what is that covenant purpose? In part, it is to set aside uh, aspirations, goals, and even hopes that may misalign with what God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. Now, again, let me restate that perhaps differently. We must be willing to set aside any aspirations, goals, and hopes we may have that misalign with the will of God. Some of them are fine. Uh, some of them are admirable. Some of them should be kept. Some of them we should pursue with diligence. But we would say that many of us, um, when we came to faith in the living God, we had aspirations and goals and hopes, and we have set them. And I came to Christ, and the Lord uh, reconfigured it all. He edited it all, really. And so we have to be willing to do that because we have a purpose that's beyond what we thought our purpose may have been. We are called to proclaim the good news of God, a God who intervenes in the lives of people. And we see in chapter 40 of Isaiah, Judah is in need of good news. Uh, they need good news because despite their failure to maintain the covenant, what has happened? Uh, they have failed. And so now, despite their failure, the one, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the one who initiated the covenant will demonstrate. And what is he going to demonstrate? He's going to demonstrate compassion towards them, and he's going to bring them home again. He says, yes, uh, the Babylonians have sent you away. I will bring you back. God saves people from their sin. He saves them from their failure. And God is going to save Israel yet again from their enemies, and he's going to bring them back to the land. Now, in this text, there's some questions that we need to answer. And from this text, we need to answer, who is proclaiming the good news? And we've seen these voices as we began chapter 40 that are making announcements. So we want to understand who proclaims this good news. And then we want to understand, number two, how should we proclaim it? How are they called to proclaim the news? 
And then we want to ask, what is the nature of the news itself? That is, who is supposed to be the proclaimers or the heralds or the bearers of the news? And then we ask ourselves a question, how do we go about it? Or how were they supposed to go about it? And then what are they supposed to say? What's the message? What is the content? And we see it right here for some important words um, from this text. There are important words from this text. And what are they? High mountain. He says, Zion, the bearer of good news. He says, you need to lift up your voice mightily. And again, he says, lift it up. He says to the people of God, do not fear. Cities of Judah, here is your God. And that begins to tell us even the good news because he says, here is your message. Here is your God. And then it tells us about what this God would do and how he'll go about it. And again, he says in verse 10 and 11, Behold, and he says again, behold. So important for us to understand what he's communicating. Then he talks about might and his ruling arm. And then he talks about his reward and even his recompense. And in a beautiful image that this great warrior God is also a shepherd. And notice this great warrior God who is a shield with him gently. He will gather them in his arms. He will lead them. And what a wonderful picture that we should have from this, because that it should be, at least it should be, it is to my own soul, a great encouragement that this great God, the creator of all things, the one who is a warrior God, is also God that shepherds you, that cares for you, that deals with you gently, that leads you. And this is in part why even as we see God as our father in scriptures, it, te- it says to fathers that they should not exasperate um, their children, but raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And this is why the scripture would say of God, if I were to contend with you based on what you deserve, no flesh could stand. You would all be exasperated. Therefore, I will come to you with compassion, passion or his tenderness. He has shown them his wrath. He has sent them into exile. They will be partially punished, not fully, because they never received all that was due them. But yet, that's good news, isn't it? I mean, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're here this day and you know Christ, that is, Christ has opened your eyes and you come to grips with your own sin and you see that the only answer is Christ and him alone and you surrender your heart to him, your life to him, then you realize that is good news, is it not? Because people who come to grips with their sin, they also realize what would be the consequence of my sin. Oh. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. Is that not good news? That is good news. And so here we see another two uh, verses, really 1 through 11, as we make our way through it um, to chapters 40 to 48. There's a larger context. 1 through 11 would be this, a message of heavenly comfort. Because the chapter starts off, comfort Oh, comfort my people. And then it's going to end with this message of good news. And then there's a message of heavenly character. Because beginning in verse 12, what do we notice? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? It is the spirit of the Lord. So that's its character, which we'll see in 12 to 26. 
and then 27 to 31, there's a message of heavenly courage. Because if the Lord is on our side, and if he is strengthening us, then we will have strength for the battle. We'll notice, if you will, we've already looked at the context of verses 3 to 8, and then the message of verses 6 to 7. And it's telling us essentially, when we look at verses 3 to 5, there are these voices that are calling out, make a way for the Lord, for the glory of God. The glory of God is coming. And what is the glory of God? The glory of God is a physical manifestation of his perfections. What is the glory of God? It is um, how he acts on his behalf. That's his glory, the things that he does for his people and for his name. What is his glory? It is again talking about his name and who he is. This is his glory, so make a way for it. And then in verses 6 to 8, another unidentified voice calls out that all mankind is frail. And there's a permanence to God's ways. How do we see that? Briefly note, if you will, it says, There is a breath, but the Lord blows upon it. The people are grass. It withers. It fades. But in verse 8, in strong contrast, but the word of the Lord stands for how long? Forever. Man is frail. Now, the wording here is something we should pay attention to for a moment, just by way of reminder in verse 6, and all its loveliness. So the name has here loveliness. Very interesting. Um, but when we think about it for a moment, the idea of loveliness, um, the NIV says all of his glory. The ESV says all of his beauty. The Holman translation says all of his goodness. The Net Bible says all of his promises. And then if you look at the NIV, uh, the NASB, I'm sorry, the NASB margin, if some of you have a study Bible, you'll probably see the word constancy. So in all of his constancy is like the flower, we'll find this a beautiful word, one of the richest words in all of the Bible, hesed. And you've heard that word before, have you not? Somebody tell me, what does that word mean? Loving kindness, it, it means faithfulness, right? Loyal love, it is commitment. Say, for instance, in the book of Hosea, you see it often translated loyalty. Now, when we think about the contrast, all of his loveliness or his constancy, his commitment, the net Bible promises they will fail. And I think it's better by way of translation to go with maybe the, the Nazbe margin constancy or this sense of the net Bible promises. Why? Men will fail in their word. Will they not? Has anyone ever promised you something and didn't come through on it? They did. I officiate their wedding, and it was, it was very simple, and I stood in front of them and they in front of me and, and, and the three of us in front of the audience and, and mainly before the living God, and they made vows. And um, yes, will you? Yes, I will. And I asked them this, and then we had a ring, a portion of the ring, and I said, well, this ring and what it represents, and I said, place it on the right finger, and initially the guy didn't have it on the right finger. That tends to happen. Guys, uh, initially they're pretty cool. They're thinking everything's okay until it gets closer and closer to saying the vows. I don't know why it's that way. I was that way as well, just to be honest about it. You, you saw me like an hour before we were married, and we looked at the old video of me, and I was like, oh, everything's fine. Yeah, no worries whatsoever. 
And boy, when we were getting ready to march in, I started to sweat a little bit. <laughs> Nothing. And so with the ring, I said, this ring I give you in token and pledge of our constant faith and abiding love. A promise. A promise. But not everyone keeps that promise. And some people are on the very hurtful side of that promise where someone says, oh, yes, constant faith and abiding love. I can't do it anymore. I can't. I've tried. I've gotten help. So it's best we part our ways. See, that's the constancy of man, the promises of man. It's like the flower in the field. And those of you that have it and it's still constant, praise God for it because it's by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. So man's word fails. God's word is indeed. And so we see this. And then if we go back to the text again, notice what he says here as we continue. What is the message? What is the message? Um, The outline would be this way if we look at this passage. Um, And it really would be the messenger of the good news. The messenger of the good news. And then the manner of preaching the good news. And then again, the message of the good news. So the messenger, the manner, and then the message. And what we're going to do um, this morning is focus really in verse 9 and answer the question about the manner of preaching the good news. Because a while back, we did look at the messenger, and that messenger is clearly uh, Judah, and it is clearly Jerusalem. Now, there's some that differ. Some would say it's a message to Judah, as it's translated. They are the bearer of the good news. So they would speak to themselves that indeed our God is a faithful God. Yahweh will show that he is constant. Yahweh will show that he does not fail, so we should not be a people who would fear. Bearer of good news, so important. You find this word 24 times in the Old Testament, seven times in Isaiah to be a bearer, to be a herald of. And initially, when we think about this word, it gives us a sense if we're a bearer of good news, it means that we're a steward of it. We have responsibility. We're to take care of it. It is something entrusted to us. We have a treasure, and we must keep that treasure close to our hearts. Now, the manner of this preaching, though, what is the manner of the preaching? Well, we notice here in the text it says, In verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain. So we start with high mountain. Now you notice um, it says here, get yourself up on a high mountain. But actually, high mountain is first in the sentence structure. It's saying, high mountain, get yourself up there. And why is that? To emphasize that you need to be in a place that represents authority and presence and even visibility. An example of it might be, Look with me to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9. Judges 9, and what does it communicate? Judges 9, verse 7. I know we don't go to Judges that often. Um, I just listen as I read. Verse 7, Now when they told Jothan, he went up and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim, his his voice, and called out, 
Thus he said to them, listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So a pronouncement is made. Why up on a mountain? Well, think which, what Bill has been going through in the Sermon on the Mount. And it says in Matthew 5, 1, and then Jesus went up on a mount and he began to talk. Why? Because it is a place of visibility. It's practical. And in one sense, it represents some sense of authority. And if one is on the high ground, uh, the voice is going to carry. We can see the person. He's saying, you need to be uh, positioned so that you're visible. You need to be positioned so that your voice goes forth. So get yourself up on a high mountain. I mean, the reason is obvious. Those commissioned uh, to be bearers of good news, Yahweh's message of salvation, should put themselves in a position where the message is uninhibited. And that would be that. If one is in the valley, there's a potential that it might be. Now, um, is it important that they literally be on a mountain? No. It's an image that is being created that says, this message is important. Make sure that you shout it from the... And no one, the, the wording doesn't say shout it. It, do, it may at times, it may say shout it from the streets, but the emphasis is shout it from the rooftops. Correct? Because if one is on the rooftop, then they're visible and they're heard, and I need to listen to your message. Even today, when we think about pulpits when it comes to preaching, um, pulpits are generally what? Elevated, are they not? And if we look at pulpits in times past, very purposely elevated, taking a stairs to the pulpit as you would preach the word of God. Now, of course, here in this setting, um, we are almost at eye level. If you were to stand, we would be. But normally, there would be elevation. We go to the main sanctuary, and what is there, four or five steps up to the pulpit itself. It represents that sense of authority and visibility and presence to proclaim this so important message. Now, now of course, there are people, uh, say, for instance, Joel Osteen, a wonderful stage. I love the pulpit is... The lecture is beautiful, uh, but uh, debauchery comes from it. So it doesn't matter if you have uh, elevation. If you have nothing to say, it does no good, right? I'd love to take that pulpit. It's really nice, but anyway. <laughs> and if you, could just, if you could just have some theology behind it, then amen, right? It would be wonderful. So give me a double music stand. What does it matter? So he says, get yourself up on a mountain. And this idea of being visible and having a sense of authority and presence is and maybe in principle consistent with what Jesus Christ said. And he said of his harrows, they should be like a city set on a hill and there should be lights that are visible. Several years ago when we visited um, Jerusalem, we were at the Sea of Galilee and we were talking about the image of Jesus and what that was communicating and at one point in time, as we looked across the sea, or the lake, really, um, <clears throat> you could see an area where there used to be a Roman garrison. And uh, the conclusion, at least conjecture, was that probably Jesus Christ may have had this in mind, because think about it for a moment. At night, what is going to happen to all the little areas around, around it? What, does it go? Who are the people that have enough oil to keep their lamps burning at night? The soldiers would. They have to. They would have to have it. 
And so as everything else goes dark, you look across the Sea of Galilee, where I can even picture it now. You're looking across, and you would have seen these lights on in that area. Highly visible. And we think about it today. Say, for instance, it is dark, and if someone simply holds a flashlight on a hill, everyone is going to see it. But go and hold that same flashlight right now, it's not visible. And we live in a dark world, do we not? In the midst of the darkness, the word of God that we're learning here is telling us that we must be a people who are light. Get up on a mountain and make sure that your voice is heard. Now, next notice what it says. Go back to verse 9 of Isaiah 40. So get yourself, he says, up. Get yourself up. And, um, and I'll just a quote from Alex Moter, excellent French um, Old Testament scholar. I love him on anything that has to do with Isaiah. Uh, and he, he says this, you who bring, and he says this, quote, a feminine verb. Drawing on the occasion when Miriam took her tambourine and sang of the victory of the Lord had won. Exodus 15, 20, 1 Samuel 18, and then also Psalm 68, 11. Pictures this celebratory company of singing women being led out of Zion to meet the returning Victor Shepherd. That's right. God has been victorious. Let us get up. Let us bring our tambourines. Let us shout. And so we must be a people who are energized to say, let me go and find that mount to claim the message of God. And again, the mountain is simply saying that we speak a certain way. There's a sense of priority that we have to have. There's a sense of authority that we must come with. You can speak, quote, on the mountain when you're talking to your neighbor. You can speak on the mountain when you talk to your coworker. And so he says here should be our attitude. Go with me to Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. Why is this important? It's important because this is, this is Israel's calling. It is Israel's calling. Notice Isaiah 2 verse 3. It says, and many peoples will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of of the God of Jacob, he says, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths for the law will go down and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Now also look with me at Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. Again, this is Jerusalem's calling. Isaiah 41 and then in verse 27. And it says, Formerly I said to Zion, Behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. Go over to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 in verse 7. Isaiah 52, 7, verse 6 says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day I will be the one who is speaking. Here I am. Now notice what Isaiah said. A part of the good news is to say, Here is your God, and here... God makes a pronouncement. I will say, here I am. Verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings what? Good news. Who announces peace. Brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation. And says to Zion, your God reigns. And this is why we get the language from what? 
uh, Romans chapter 10, that we're to be the people who are bringing good news. This is why we're to shod our feet with the gospel of peace, because our life should be that, bringing good news to people. And Israel was to speak this good news to itself. We failed. In one sense, we violated the covenant. Um, We took off this which should represent constancy and commitment and faithfulness, and we set it aside for the gods of the world. And what did God, for a period of time, he would set us aside. But because he he would do what? Bring us back again. And amen for that. Then next, how are we to go about this message? Notice if we go back to Isaiah 40, verse 9, it says, O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice. What does it say? Mightily. So let's pause here for a moment. Mightily. So get up on the mountain, and it says go with that sense of uh, anticipation representing I come to celebrate, but he says mightily. Um, when the message of God's saving ways is to be proclaimed, it must be done with some sense of, we can say, a divinely inspired resolve and intensity. Do you have a divinely inspired resolve and intensity? Remember, I mean, what Israel was charged to announce. They were charged by God to the nations and to themselves the eternal hope that Yahweh is the exclusive Savior for all mankind. And we are commissioned to do the same. We are supposed to proclaim what? Life and death. We have a message that talks about two kingdoms. One is darkness and one is light. We are putting before men eternity. Now, when I've mentioned eternity, there is light and darkness, there is light and death. Eternity, I didn't contrast it for this reason, because every man will face eternity. The question is where? We're all immortal beings. Either some that come to grips with their sin by God's grace will spend an eternity and everlasting bliss with the Lord, worshiping him. And those that deny God and choose their pride will spend an eternity of separation from the living God. When I was in San Jose, I was, um, it was their anniversary celebration and charging them, their young church, a lot of young families there, and to make sure that they stay the course and For a moment, I talked about the urgency we need to have with the message because it is a matter of life and death. And as I've done on several occasions, as I was thinking about hell, I paused for a moment because through my mind flooded people that I know that are headed to hell. And I do believe that um, whenever we mention hell, that there should be a moment of pause. It should be a Selah moment. You have it in the scriptures where you look in the... Pause. Think. Consider. I mean, how many of you have loved ones that are separated from the eternal God? And as much as you may have an affection for them and they for you, um, that will not help them cross over into life. 
So the question for you is, will you get up on a mountain and speak? And will you speak mightily? This sense of urgency and intensity. Mightily is a word that we see even in, in Isaiah 40. Notice in chapter 40, notice verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his created them all. And the scripture tells us what? He upholds all things by the word of his power. So his might, word used here, might, strength. Look at verse 29. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, uh, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is what? Inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. When we lean upon his grace, it is readily available. So he says in Chapter 40, then in verse 9, we're to speak, of course we're to speak on this high mountain, but to do it mightily. Um, The Holman Bible says this, we're to do it loudly. The ESV and the New King James says, you are to do it with strength. Um, The LSB says, you are to do it powerfully. So when we speak the word of God, we speak it and we speak it with strength and we speak it what powerfully. Why? Because it is the very message of our creator. The, the language tells us that we should not be ashamed of this message. Why shouldn't we be ashamed of the message? Because its source is the foundation of truth. Why should we not be ashamed of this message? Because its source is the hope for every nation. Of course we shouldn't be ashamed of this message because its source is the only means of salvation for souls without God. Don't be ashamed. And God is saying, I have sent you to exile, but you return again by my sovereign hand. But let me say this as well. Not only should it be done with a sense of passion, we get mightily or strength or loudly, it must be done with some sense of urgency. And let's go again, go back to verse 9. Where do you get urgency? Some of it um, I referenced before when it says get up on, that's urgency. As Miriam would come out with the tambourines to greet them, there was urgency behind it. But notice how the author emphasizes it here. So verse 9, get yourself up, he says, then it In verse 9, lift up, and then it says, lift it up. So these threes. And often that's a sense of a great emphasis that is here. So there's a sense of urgency, go up, lift up, lift up. And what's interesting, even in the Hebrew wording, um, the sound is similar. Uh, Ha, harimi, harimi, is what he's saying. And so they would have heard it like that. That's right, let me get up, let me lift up, let me lift up. This sense of urgency is necessary. Turn with me to Isaiah, thir- Isaiah 13 and verse 2. Isaiah 13, 2. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw, lift up a standard on the bare wall, raise your voice to them, wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the noble. So we see intensity there. There is an oracle. There's a message for them. Make sure you go out and proclaim it. 
Let's go all the way to Isaiah 58. I'll go to Isaiah 58 and then verse 1. Here, the language is similar to what we see in Isaiah 40. Notice what it says in Isaiah 58. One, cry loudly. And what does it say? The Nazby says what? Do not what? Say it. Hold back. Pause there for a moment. The language is clear. The intensity come out, coming out in the language, the intensity coming out and even how the author it. But here, cry loudly, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgressions and to the house of Jacob their sins. Because in Isaiah 58, God would say of Israel, here you are fasting, but this is not the fast that I choose. The fast that I choose is that you would do justice to your neighbor. You would help the weak. You would help the orphan. You would help the widow. So he says, proclaim this, that you are sinners. But notice what he says, though, in verse 40. See, this is why it's good news. So Isaiah 58 says, don't hold back. Do it like a trumpet. Your transgressions are ever before me. But in Isaiah 40, your sins are taken care of. Proclaim good news. I'm going to come like a shepherd. And I'm going to gently lead. I'm going to gather you in my arms. See the contrast that's here? Now, this is important. And we all know it, but let's go back to sharing the gospel one-on-one. Um, and I'll lead you into it. Um, before we can really say it's good news, we have to hear what? Bad yeah, bad news. Right? You're with me. Actually, I knew you would be. Just all you bright lights in here. Um, you must tell people today... And let's get serious about a Joel Osteen for a moment. Okay. Um, It's a place, and people like him, it represents a place where there's truly not good news. Why is there truly not good news? Because I must recognize what? My sin. I must recognize my sin first. And if you never, Isaiah 58, cry loudly, lift up your voice like a trumpet, your transgressions, I cannot appreciate, I don't even see the need for the good news. Why do I need Yahweh? Why do I need a suffering servant? Why do I need redemption? I don't need redemption. My life is perfectly fine. And the beauty of God's ways is this. It doesn't matter what a person has done. It doesn't matter how far they have gone from God's ways, that he is a saving God. Amen for that? It doesn't matter. I saw a video recently, and I retweeted it, and I think I put it on Facebook as well. It was a sad, sad occasion. Um, It was a TikTok of young people that were talking about their gender and the fluidity of gender. And then talked about what nouns. I'm a he, she, they, it. Well, hmm. And then one says, well, I'm a they, them. And then he stopped for a moment. He says, wait a minute, maybe I'm a him, mo. And he literally, I saw him like seriously thinking for a moment. And his girlfriend or whatever she calls herself, because she had already talked about her pronouns, said, you seem to be confused. And I prayed and I thought, you know what? I pray God that he is. Amen. Amen. And pause for a moment. In all seriousness, I pray that he's confused 
And, and I mean it in this way. We know that they're confused when they even question it. But some, their heart has become so hardened to the gospel, they don't think they're confused. So I saw that as an opportunity. Maybe this young man is confused and maybe he'll look for answers that is not in this foolishness that is in the world. And then there was one guy and he had um, like um, little rubby, um, like um, bunny ears or something. And he was talking about what he is and what he isn't. And I thought to myself, confused. But I said, pray for these confused souls and those who support this moral incongruity. Because it is that. But be careful, saints. Because it's easy to say to them, oh, you confused people. Oh, don't you know that God doesn't tolerate that sort of thing? Oh, here's a study Bible for you. (laughs) As opposed to, what a sad soul. Let me pray for them. Maybe God will open their eyes. And God does. God has opened the eyes of lesbians. God has opened the eyes of uh, homosexuals. God has opened the eyes in a minute. God has opened the eyes of the transgender. And God will continue to open the eyes of sinners. Will he not? This is what God does. And so we should see opportunities like that as an opportunity for prayer and to lift our voice with some sense of urgency. Because who else has the answers? Um, they are to act with passion. And let me think about an edit here. Next, go back to Isaiah 40, verse 9. Isaiah 40, verse 9. And what does it say here? Our next word, next idea, thought, do not fear. Do not fear. Now, when we started our study in Isaiah 40, you may remember me noting the first occurrence of key words that are in Isaiah 40, and a vital role in the rest of the passage, but also play a vital role in the rest of the book, and in 40 to 48 in particular. And what are some of those words? Let's go back and note them. What are some of the first occurrences of the words? Verse 1, says, and we see that throughout. God says. He speaks with authority. What is another key word? We already noted glory. We see glory throughout, especially in Isaiah um, 46 to 48, glory. We see it first here. And of course, in verse 9, the first occurrence of do not fear. I'm going to develop this further, especially in Isaiah 43 and 44, this idea of not fearing. What's another first occurrence of a word? Look with me at verse 18. To whom then will you liken? Because God throughout Isaiah is saying, will you liken me to the nations? Will you liken me to idols? Will you liken me to false gods? Ah. And then verse 25, notice the first occurrence of holy one. So important. I'm the holy one that's in your midst. Despite the fact that you have sinned and you have rejected my covenant, I am still in your midst. Notice verse 28, the first occurrence of creator. And he is the creator of the ends of the earth. If you look at chapter 14, verse 4, the first occurrence of I am he. And that is a a favorite idea of mine. And pause for a moment and think about it. We will surely develop it later on. I am he. What does that bring to mind? If you go to the Exodus and what? 
take off your sandals because the place in which you're standing is what? And Moses said, what, what, I should tell them what? What is your name? And what do you say? I am that I am. Now, we go to John's gospel, and John's gospel is built around, really, around I am statements. If you were to follow it, it is built around that. And of course, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. So the connection really in John's thought is it is a declaration of Christ in his superior nature. He is Christ and has come, the word become flesh. Its connection is first with Isaiah and then Isaiah to Exodus. So this declaration here, I am he, this is so important. God says, I am the one. I have the answers. I'm the covenant-keeping God. I will be on your side. I will support you in the thick and thin. I will chasten you at times, but then I will bring you back because I'm a compassionate God. I am he. And then notice verse 8 of chapter 41. But you, Israel, my servant. The first occurrence there of servant. And of course, Cyrus would be a servant of God. And of course, the ultimate servant is the Lord Jesus Christ, is he not? So the question comes up, why is this command repeated so often? Because here, do not fear or don't be afraid is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. So why is it repeated so often? Um, and I would say this simply, that the command is repeated so often because of the propensity of people to fear. If you were to open um, a Google search, and if you were to say phobias, how many phobias would come up? And some of you right now, you phobias. Places, things that you don't like, um, you don't like to be. I saw an interesting thing that surely they would have to get a person that doesn't have a fear of heights to do it. Uh, a great advertisement for Emirates. And Emirates, very nice airline. Um, and um, they filmed it on top of the tallest structure until there's one that's competing with it right now. The tallest structure in the world. And uh, I it's going to be it because it, uh, Empire State Building 2600, I think it's at 2700 feet. And so it's a marvelous tower that's in Dubai. And she's filming it on top. And what she's doing is she's talking about, you know, the flashcard deal. And they say, okay, they just kind of they have her on the rooftop somewhere. And then they zoom away from it. And you see her above Dubai. And it's a wonderful picture. And I saw, how did they do that uh, up there? But nonetheless, to be there and to do that, you cannot have a fear of heights, can you? <laughs> Absolutely not. You can't. People have all sorts of fears. And so God says, don't fear. Don't fear at all. People have a propensity to fear, and even covenant people, even you, may fear. Why is it important that it's repeated so often? Because of this. Because this is the opposite of fear is what God calls every person to do. Trust. So we can therefore say that fear is a lack of trust. 
So when you fear me, you trust me. And when you fear men, you do not trust me. When we think efficient, covenant-keeping God, am I all sufficient? Or will you look to Egypt? Or you look to the Assyrians? Or will you look to some other alliance? Will you look to self for your salvation? Am I covenant-keeping God? Will you bow down before me? Will you worship me as I am due? And this is why Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. God says, don't fear. I may have sent you away for a while. I'm going to bring you back. God says, don't fear. I will send a deliverer to you. Help is on the way. And it comes from my power and my might, not your own. All of us may fear. And when we look at the Old Testament through the the lens of the New Testament, we see track record after track record of this unbreachable love that God has demonstrated to the people of God for century, for millennium. So why should we fear? There's no reason to fear. We realize that God is controlling every aspect of our life, every pain and heartache and joy and blessing, every opportunity that comes our way, every joy that comes our way, God controls it all. The hope of our future, God controls it all. It is from the one above. So why should I fear? There must be fearless proclamation. Get up on a mountain, speak mightily, and don't fear. And sometimes, isn't it interesting, we can fear the people that perhaps are the closest to us. How many of you have feared sharing the good news with a loved one? Yeah. <laughs> How many of you feared sharing the good news to a co-headed to eternal damnation? Why should we fear? God is on our side. A final thought is this. Um, We have to have a passion for an eternal message. This is our message here. Romans 1.16, what does it tell us? Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God unto salvation. Why should I be ashamed of it? Don't fear. I'll close with this thought from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20. Paul has told us about the arm of God beginning in verse 10. And then he says, it is so important that you pray, prayer, petitions for all the saints. And then he says this in verse 20. He says, and pray for me. And what does he say? that I would speak boldly as I ought to speak. We might use the language from Isaiah, that I would speak mightily as I ought to speak, that I would speak loudly as I ought to speak, that I would speak with strength as I ought to speak. And when we rest in the Lord, it is in His strength and in His power. Amen? Not at all. And He will embolden us when we trust Him to be messengers of the good news. That's our covenant purpose. That's why we're here. Let me just say this to you. It's, the fellowship group is fine, lovely. I love coming here Sunday to Sunday, seeing you and ministering to you outside of this and teaching you. Um, and the worship service, great, 53 years, John MacArthur and one pulpit, that's wonderful. The things we do around the world, wonderful. The thousands of kids that are on this campus now, wonderful. 
But all of that has one ultimate, is that we be equipped to share the good news. And when, correct? And if we aren't reaching that end, we've missed our commission. Father, we thank you for the words you give us. And I pray that they would encourage our hearts um, as we are called to love you, to serve you, to fear you, and help us to be bold proclaimers of your truth. Amen.